late one night in the autumn of 1808, Wordsworth set off for the head of Dunmail Rays, a pass four miles north of his Grasmere home. The year was a crucial one in the Peninsular War against Napoleon's armies. Wordsworth was anxious to receive intelligence from the London papers and was heading north to meet the night carrier who would be conveying copies down from Keswick. With him was his young disciple and friend, Thomas de Quincey, who, much later, recounted the following story. During their long wait in the silent darkness, Wordsworth would periodically stretch himself full length on the high road and press his ear to the ground. He was trying to pick up the sound of wheels as the distant cart approached them from the north. Once, de Quincey recorded, when Wordsworth was slowly rising from this effort, his eye caught a bright star that was glittering between the brow of Seat Sandal and of the mighty Helvellyn. He gazed upon it for a minute or so, and then, upon turning away to descend again into Grasmere, he made the following explanation. I have remarked from my earliest days that if the attention is energetically braced up to an act of steady observation or of steady expectation, then if this intense condition of vigilance should suddenly relax, at that moment any beautiful, any impressive visual object or collection of objects falling upon the eye is carried to the heart with a power not known under other circumstances. Just now my ear was placed upon the stretch in order to catch any sound of wheels that might come down upon the lake of Withburn from the Keswick Road. At the very instant when I raised my head from the ground in final abandonment of hope for this night, at the very instant when the organs of attention were all at once relaxing from their tension, the bright star hanging in the air above those outlines of massy blackness fell suddenly upon my eye and penetrated my capacity of apprehension with a pathos and a sense of the infinite that would not have arrested me under other circumstances. Much of the language here, if not the sensibility itself, could be drawn from Edmund Burke's treatise on the sublime and beautiful. The physical object of vision, a star, is in fact directly referred to the beautiful. The internalised experience, on the other hand, the massy blackness, the apprehension, the intimations of the infinite fit squarely into the category of the sublime. Perception, then, is inwards and moves away from any observation of the concrete visual scene towards introspective, subjective involvement. This concern with how it actually feels to observe landscape or aspects of nature, rather than with the way that they are configured by the observing mind, moves us away from picturesque manipulation towards a more fluid and aesthetically open form of romantic sensibility. In fact, the intimate, dramatised scene offers a microcosm of the creative process. Interestingly for us, after recording Wordsworth's response to the star at Dunmal Rays, de Quincey goes on to note that on the walk back to Grasmere, the poet offered another illustration of the same psychological principle, this related to a schoolboy incident where, waiting for an owl to respond to his own mimic hootings, as he put it, the surrounding lake scenery entered his mind in startlingly unbidden fashion. You might like to remember the connection, since the poem that Wordsworth wrote on the incident, There Was a Boy, is the one we will be looking at next. For Wordsworth, then, creative immediacy was almost habitual. It could be refined to the point where the imagination could, in his words see into the life of things. Sometimes the young Wordsworth literally lost sight of the external and found himself looking at the inner workings of his own creative processes of perception. 
On his way to and from Hawkshead School, for example, he records how he would be forced to grasp a wall or a tree to recall himself from this hallucinatory state. Such experiences led Wordsworth to conclude that there was an active principle in the natural world coincident with the needs of the human spirit. In many ways, the poems are an exploration of such an intuition, something that, strictly speaking, cannot be bodied out rationally. In the long work on the growth of his poetic sensibilities, The Prelude, Wordsworth records a number of distinct stages in his developing attitude to nature during his boyhood in the Lake District. Firstly, there was the unselfconscious enjoyment of the lake's landscape, simply as an adjunct to boyhood pursuits. Here is how the poet himself describes the feelings of his ten-year-old self in Book One of The Prelude. The sands of Westmoreland, the creeks and bays of Cumbria's rocky limits, they can tell how when the sea threw off his evening shade and to the shepherd's huts beneath the crags did send sweet notice of the rising moon. How I have stood to fancies such as these, engrafted in the tenderness of thought, a stranger, linking with the spectacle no conscious memory of a kindred sight, and bringing with me no peculiar sense of quietness or peace. In the next phase, the lake scenery is consciously sought out in the knowledge that it can give pleasure. Perception of the beauty and the mystery latent in landscape, however, is still only incidental to the young boy's pursuit of sport and adventure. Turning to Book Two of the Prelude, we can see Wordsworth relate this, once again, to his Hawkshead school days. We ran a boisterous race, the year span round with giddy motion, but the time approached that brought with it a regular desire for calmer pleasures, when the beauteous forms of nature were collaterally attached to every scheme of holiday delight, and every boyish sport, less grateful else and languidly pursued. Finally, the supporting structure of thoughtless pleasure is removed, and nature is sought for itself alone. Here is an extract from Book Two of the Prelude, the point at which, as a 14-year-old schoolboy, Wordsworth experiences his deepest empathy with the natural world and sees nature as a semi-autonomous living power. Note the conflation of the sacramental and the sensuous. I was left alone, seeking the visible world, nor knowing why. The props of my affections were removed, and yet the building stood as if sustained by its own spirit. All that I beheld was dear to me, and from this cause it came that now to nature's finer influxes my mind lay open, to that more exact and intimate communion which our hearts maintain with the minuter properties of objects which already are beloved, and of those only. The experiences of schoolboys, the valuation very much the adults. It was only when Wordsworth later came to meditate on his earlier Lake's experiences that their full significance in the evolution of his poetic growth lay fully revealed, Visionary bliss, visionary power, an obscure sense of possible sublimity, a dream, a prospect in my mind. These are just a few of the approaches to defining the nature of these exalted states of perception that Wordsworth attempts in the prelude. All this is absent from an evening walk. That early poem inhabits very different cultural and aesthetic ground from the prelude. As we will see... The very premise of There Was a Boy, itself to be absorbed into the prelude, is that external nature embodies a living mind, open, Wordsworth believed, to a creative relationship with the human mind. From the Open University, 
For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.